You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome. Welcome to Monday, right here on WJMSRadio.com. You're listening to Fired Up, and this is Steve. I host the show each week as we get into the mechanics of the political system here in the United States. So we had another busy week this week, and uh, we're going to cover some of the major events that occurred. But as always, we're going to start off with our update on where we are with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the vaccine progress, because we've got some updates for you. Uh, for COVID-19, uh, to date, we have had 30.6 million cases reported in the United States, uh, and 554.8 thousand people have died from the disease as of uh, Monday. On the vaccine front, 161 million doses of vaccine have been administered to uh, Americans uh, in the country, and uh, 18% of the U.S. population has now been fully vaccinated and 31.4% have had at least one dose of a vaccine. So we continue to make good, strong progress each day over day. Uh, Let's keep that going, but let's remember to practice what the doctors and the scientific community tell us we need to do. In other news related to uh, the Uh, COVID pandemic and some news out of the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said Friday that a fully vaccinated American can resume domestic and overseas travel as long as they wear masks in public. Uh, The individuals do not need to get a COVID-19 test before or after domestic travel and do not need to self-quarantine on return as long as they follow public health measures. Uh, In addition, the agency said fully vaccinated Americans do not need a COVID-19 test for international travel unless it is required by the country they are traveling to, and they do not need to quarantine upon re-entry into the U.S. Fully vaccinated Americans that choose to travel internationally still need to receive a negative COVID-19 test no more than three days before traveling back to the United States. So uh, some other pieces of this, uh, CDC Director uh, Rochelle Walensky said Friday that Americans should still try to avoid travel because the number of COVID-19 cases are rising across the country. However, she said, traveling is lower risk for fully vaccinated individuals. And uh, she's quoted saying, we must balance this guidance with the fact that most Americans are still not vaccinated. As I said, the uh, COVID vaccines, uh, the, the injections of the vaccines into Americans continues to ramp up across the country. Um, more than in, in, in breaking down some of the numbers, more than 50% of Americans 65 and older are fully vaccinated. Uh, and that's according to the CDC. And more than 3 million people are receiving a shot per day. So this report came out on uh, April 2nd, uh, two days ago or three days ago. And, uh, you know, we continue to see good news coming on the vaccination front uh, in our battle with COVID-19. We'll keep you posted on any new updates uh, as they happen. And by the way, just as a note, uh, this coming Thursday, yours truly will get his first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 
So next week's show, I'll give you an update on how that went and what I experienced and am experiencing from it. So I will keep you posted on that. I'm definitely looking forward to getting my shot uh, just so that I am as safe as possible. So I'll keep you up to date on that, folks. All right, so let's turn the page and revisit the story I brought to you last week on the uh, voting law signed in Georgia. So since that law was signed, uh, there's been a flurry of reaction and pushback. Uh, there have been several lawsuits filed. The first one was filed within an hour of Governor Kemp signing the, the bill into law. And now we have uh, companies in Atlanta and Georgia uh, boycotting, uh, doing business in the state, um, the All-Star Game is looks like it's going to be moved from being held in Atlanta to another venue. And even former President Donald Trump has weighed in on the controversy. In an article from Business Insider that came out on Sunday, uh, it starts with, Donald Trump has expanded his list of, quote, woke, close quote, companies to boycott due to their opposition to Georgia's voting law. And the article reads, uh, Donald Trump has spoken out again about the companies that oppose Georgia's new voting law. He called for more boycotts, saying don't go back to their products until they relent. Uh, Barack Obama, also former president, meanwhile commented the MLB, I'm sorry, commended the MLB on its decision to move its all-star game from Atlanta. Uh, the article goes on. Former President Donald Trump doubled down on his criticism of companies that opposed Georgia's new voting law and widened his appeal for more boycotts. Never submit, never give up, Trump said in a statement. He added that his political opponents, the radical left Democrats, in quotes, had long used brand boycotts to send messages. He also said, in quote, it's finally time for Republicans and conservatives to fight back. We have more people than they do by far. Boycott Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, J.P. Morgan Chase, Viacom CBS, Citigroup, Cisco, UPS, and Merck. Don't go back to their products until they relent. We can play the game better than them, Trump said. So, you know, he's weighing in here on, you know, his view on the uh, boycotts that the companies I just mentioned uh, have either undertaken or have expressed uh, condemnation or opposition to the voting law uh, signed in Georgia. Um, you know, others that have weighed in, Republican National Committee Chair Rona McDaniel said she was skipping MLB broadcasts. And a quote from her, guess what I'm doing today? Not watching baseball, she said on Twitter. MLB's decision to move the game could cost the Atlanta economy about $100 million in lost revenue, Holly Quinlan, a local tourism official, told CNN on Saturday. So, you know, it, it, this is nothing new. Um, boycotts by corporate entities have been a longstanding tactic of protest. Uh, probably the, the biggest and most successful one was the economic boycott of South Africa, during the time of apartheid, uh, where companies such as Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and others uh, literally pulled out of that country in protest 
to the South African government's oppression of the, um, Af the African residents of the country. So, you know, we'll probably see some more of this. And, you know, it's just part of the process that we have to go through to make sure that our voices are heard across the full spectrum. You know, we can take a lesson from this in that uh, we too can choose to boycott uh, products that are, you know, made in, in Georgia. Uh, unfortunately, this will have an impact on, you know, not only Georgia's economy, but the employment situation there. But, you know, we're making, we're making a, a stand here to say that, you know, undercutting one of our, one of our, if not the most important fundamental right of people in this country, and that is the right to vote, uh, is something that, you know, will not be tolerated. And the list of companies uh, that are, are boycotting or making their voices heard uh, are some of the biggest names in industry. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Georgia-based Coca-Cola, uh, Delta Airlines, as well as the country's biggest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, are now issuing public statements that call the legislation, quote, wrong, close quote, and, quote, based on a lie and vowing unspecific action to help change it. Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said Wednesday that voting must be accessible to all Americans. While not specifically referencing Georgia, Damon said that Chase stands against efforts that prevent Americans from being able to vote. Uh, meanwhile, and this comes from an article from CBS News uh, that was posted on March 31st. Um, meanwhile, Delta CEO Ed Bastian told employees in an internal memo Wednesday that the law does not match Delta's values. After having time now to fully understand all that is in the bill, coupled with the decision with, I'm sorry, coupled with discussions with leaders and employees in the black community, it is evident that the bill includes provisions that will make it harder for many underrepresented vote voters, particularly black voters, to exercise their constitutional right to elect their representatives, Bastion said. That's wrong. City and Microsoft also expressed concern about the Georgia law Wednesday. Atlanta-based Coca-Cola CEO James Quincy told CNBC on Wednesday that Georgia's new voting law is, quote, unacceptable, close quote, and, quote, a step backwards, close quote. The Atlanta Hawks basketball team and Atlanta Falcons football team also expressed disdain with the law. Uh, and in a quote, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank said, the right to vote is simply sacred, close quote. We should be working to make voting easier, not harder, for every eligible citizen. So, you know, the, the handwriting's on the wall, and it, and it looks like battle lines are being drawn. Um, you know, it's, it's really controversial. Um, it is having some real impact on discussions in the state of Georgia and elsewhere. Keep in mind, y'all, there are more than 42 other states that are considering laws uh, aimed at rolling back uh, voting access and other voting rights in this country. And also, you should also keep in mind that even with the new law, Georgia is not the most stringent state in the country in terms of uh the right to vote and access to the polls and, and other things relating to uh, casting your ballot. Uh, states like New York uh, have even more stringent rules in terms of what 
can and cannot be done. Uh, you know, ballot boxes, you know, access to polls, hours, and so forth are even more uh, stringent in several other states around the country. So it, it looks like we're, we're seeing one of the battlefields um, as we march toward the midterms in 2022 and the general election in 2024 that are going to be wide and heated discussion topics for our political leadership and for those candidates running for office. And equally, as we always do, you know, our call to action here is that we need to stay informed about what our states are doing and, you know, communicate our message to our local and state elected officials and let them know that we hold the right to vote sacred and that we will not tolerate uh, any attempts to restrict access to vote for any groups, not just you know black or you know Latino or other minorities, but realize that these laws can also impact poor and disenfranchised people across the country, including in rural areas and other places where access to the polls is already difficult. Some of these laws are going to make it much much harder. And it's, it's our role as citizens and voters to make sure that we exercise our voice and let our elected officials know that these types of changes and these types of laws are not acceptable. We will not accept them. And if they are going against our wishes, then we will seek to replace them when election time comes. So let me put the question out there to to you all. What do you think of you know the Georgia voting law? Uh, do you think it goes too far? Do you think it doesn't go far enough? You know, uh, both sides. What are your opinions on it? Um, is it voter suppression uh, or is it uh, some you know overreach and and knee jerk reaction to what happened in the November election and the January runoff, particularly in Georgia? Uh, is it overreacting? Send your thoughts to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your comments and thoughts on it, uh, both pro and con, uh, to see you know what you all are thinking about this, this Georgia law and, and the, the 42 other states that are looking to uh, rescind a lot of access by people to their vote or, or to cast their vote. Um, you know, what, what does this say for our political leadership? You know, and what kind of changes do we need to get them moving toward making happen? So again, send, send your comments, thoughts, and concerns to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your comments. I will you know, bring them to the show and we can, we can discuss them. So um, in other news, and now you know, the other big news of the, the week was uh, President Biden unveiled his second uh, piece of big legislature, um, and that is his infrastructure proposal uh, it was uh, brought to the House and has passed uh, the House on a you know partisan vote, but you know it's still you know a lot of people don't really understand what's in the bill. So we're going to take a little bit of time right here and kind of break it down. Uh, and there was an article in uh, CNN, 
and we're going to uh, reference that. So here's here's what we've got going on. So the the president's uh, budget, which you know is is targeted for infrastructure. So I want to go through it, and then I'm going to weigh in on it a little bit. So uh, one of the components, and this is a $2.5 trillion plan uh, for infra infrastructure work in the United States. Um, you know, one segment of it, transportation, uh, that's slated for $621 billion. Um, and it's going to include uh, repairs and replacement of highways, uh, major bridges and smaller bridges, um, funding improvements to roads, bridges, railways, and other infrastructure, which has been a central piece of Biden's recovery plans. Uh, he says, Biden says it's going to create really good paying jobs uh, and help the nation compete better. So uh, his proposal in, in that 621, there's 115 billion to modernize 20,000 miles of highways, roads, and main streets, 20 billion to improve road safety for all users. It would fix the most economically significant large bridges and repair the worst 10,000 smaller bridges. And I, I can speak from, from experience that a lot of the bridges here in the North, Northeast desperately need uh, some repair and replacement. Um, he would also invest $85 billion to modernize existing transit and help agencies expand their systems to meet demand. Uh, another $80 billion would go to address uh, Amtrak's repair backlog and modernize the Northeast Corridor Line between Boston and Washington, D.C. So he would also allocate $400 billion to home care services and workforce. Uh, the $400 billion would bolster caregiving for aged and disabled Americans. Uh, it would expand access to long-term care services under Medicaid, eliminating the wait list for hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it would provide more opportunity for people to receive care at home through community-based services or from family members. It would also improve the wages of home health workers, which now make up uh, approximately $12 an hour. Um, one in six live in poverty, the administration says. It would put in place an infrastructure to give caregiving workers the opportunities to join a union also. The manufacturing sector would get $300 billion. And, you know, Biden's goal here is to boost manufacturing, including $50 billion of the money invested in semiconductor manufacturing and another $30 billion would go towards medical manufacturing to help shore up the nation's ability to respond to a future outbreak. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of help that would go out to manufacturing. Biden's also asking Congress to include $46 billion that would be used to make federal purchases of things like electric cars, charging ports, and electric heat pumps for housing and commercial buildings that would boost the clean energy industry. And he's already signed an executive order aimed at boosting American manufacturing. It's set in motion a process that would change the rules regarding federal spending on American-made goods, equipment, vehicles, and materials for infrastructure projects with a 180-day deadline that comes up in July. So, you know, another component, housing. Housing would get $213 billion. 
uh, you know, and the plan would invest the 213 billion towards building, renovating, and retrofitting more than two million homes and housing units. Uh, Biden is calling on Congress to produce, preserve, and retrofit more than a million affordable and energy efficient housing units. Uh, the plan would also build and rehabilitate more than 500,000 homes for low and middle income home buyers. In the areas of research and development, uh, the plan looks to invest $180 billion, uh, where Biden's calling on Congress for U.S. leadership in critical technologies to upgrade the U.S.'s research infrastructure and establish the U.S. as a leader in climate science, innovation, and research and development. Uh, for water systems, $111 billion, and this would go toward things uh, like the effort going on in Flint, Michigan, to replace lead water service lines um, in that city. Well, that would be expanded uh, across the country. So $111 billion to rebuild the country's water infrastructure. It would replace all of the nation's lead pipes and service lines in order to improve the health of American children and communities of color. The White House says replacing the pipes would reduce lead exposure in 400,000 schools and child care facilities. Speaking of schools, schools would get $100 billion under the Biden plan. Uh, it calls for $100 billion to build new public schools and upgrade existing buildings with better ventilation systems, updated technology labs, improved school kitchens that can prepare more nutritious meals. Another $12 billion would go to states towards infrastructure needs at community colleges. President is calling for an additional $25 billion to help upgrade child care facilities and increase the supply of child care in areas that need it the most. And in the digital infrastructure, that's getting also $100 billion. And um, Biden wants to provide every American with access to affordable high-speed Internet. And he's targeting you know, areas that right now are underserved by uh, online services and Internet connection. Um, you know, including rural areas and, uh, you know, tribal lands and so forth. So, you know, another key area that this plan would address. Uh, workforce development, that would also get $100 billion. And the article says the president would allocate $100 billion to workforce development, helping dislocated workers, assisting underserved groups, and getting students on career paths before they graduate high school. It would provide $40 billion to retrain dislocated workers in high-demand sectors, such as clean energy, manufacturing, and caregiving. It would invest $12 billion in programs to train the formerly incarcerated, creating create new subs subsidized jobs program, eliminate sub-minimum wage provisions, and support community violence prevention programs. So, you know, it, it's a wide-ranging bill that addresses uh, a huge swath of infrastructure and other related issues. Um, Biden plans to pay for it through uh, raising some corporate taxes, uh, repealing portions of the Trump tax cut uh, in, and increasing the minimum tax on U.S. corporations to 21%. I think it's 15% now under, um, under the former administration's tax plan. Uh, it would levy a 15% minimum tax on the income the largest corporations report to investors. 
and uh, it would also uh, make it harder for U.S. companies to acquire or merge with a foreign business to avoid paying U.S. taxes by claiming to be a foreign company. So, you know, there, there's a lot to break down there. Um, it is a, an ambitious plan. As I said at the top, it's about $2.5 trillion, and it's, it's already uh, receiving, you know, criticism from some, like in the Republican Party, and even, you know, progressives in the Democratic Party are saying that it, it doesn't go far enough. Um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, tweeted that you know they spent more than 1.9 trillion dollars for a program that's going to last a year. This program at 2.5 trillion is slated to take uh, at least eight years to to carry out, and it's going to be funded by um, tax cuts and other means that are going to take 10 years or more in order to pay for it. Uh, so that there's some disparity there. From my point of view, and, and I said I would weigh in on this, um, you know, the, the Republicans uh, have made a, a valid point. Uh, some of the things in this bill, you know, are clearly uh, infrastructure that is hard asset related, you know, bridges, highways, um, you know, and, and things like that. Others, such as training programs um, and, and uh, you know, research and development, are not directly infrastructure. And I'm, I have a tendency, my thought is leaning in with the Republicans on this one, uh, where I think that if this is an infrastructure bill, it needs to be shaped to focus explicitly on things that are infrastructure related and necessary in this country. You know, our roads are, you know, in general, in pretty poor shape. We have bridges that are crumbling. Some have fallen. We've seen news reports from that over the years. Um, you know, there are, you know, critical infrastructure improvements that could be made in our manufacturing section. However, you know, uh, pull it, pulling in, uh, you know, green products like electric chars, cars and charging points, they're good. But, you know, th there's also the possibility that this could be a second bill or a third bill, rather, in the series that he could do. Um, I think one of the things we see, and, and then, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up this segment on, on this point. One of the things we've noticed and one of the things I see frequently is that, you know, these large scale bills, both Democrat and Republican, um, you know, they're, they're kitchen sink bills. They have, you know, not only what their main target is, but they have all these other things lumped in like jambalaya with all the ingredients out of the cabinet going into this bill. Um, one of the things I think, you know, the Democrats can do uh, and the Republicans can do as well is let's create targeted bills. Let's look at, you know, if, if we're going to do a a bridges and highway bill. Let's do a bill that addresses bridges and highways. We don't need to, you know, address minimum wage for uh, home care workers. A good thing, don't get me wrong, but let's have that in in separate bills. Let's break this up into, you know, digestible pieces that we can discuss and debate 
and perhaps get true bipartisan support on rather than, you know, just relying on, you know, reconciliation and the Democratic majority. So, you know, we'll keep an eye on this as well, and we'll see how this bill progresses through the House and what the Senate has to say for it. Uh, we'll take our first break here. You're listening to Fired Up Radio. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because of the COVID-19 virus, we have had to learn new ways to be together. We've had to find new ways to communicate. We have to find new ways to play. And we have to find new ways to keep each other safe. For myself and my family, I'm going to take the COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about the vaccine, go to cdc.gov. Let's do this together. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I'm your host, and we're getting right into it in the political system here in the U.S., uh, wanted to follow up on another story that I brought to you earlier. Uh, this was probably a few weeks ago. And uh, it was after the uh, Congress uh, gave President Biden his $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. Uh, you might recall, and I mentioned this uh, in the show, that the Republicans did not vote. Not a single Republican voted for this bill. And I, I put out the call to action on that to say if Republicans then turn around and try and, and take credit for the bill or, you know, speak to how, you know, this is what your Congress has done for you, we need to call them out on the fact that they didn't vote for it, that it was a democratically passed bill, all Democrats, no Republicans. Uh, so... A long line with that, uh, an article came out in Business Insider uh, on Sunday. Uh, the headline reads, Republicans are touting benefits of $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill despite voting against it. And it uh, has on the cover photo uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn, who has been you know, vocal in the media talking about you know how great the bill is for his district and the things that it's going to bring and you know the 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 tenor and tone of what he's been saying just speaks of hypocrisy is the only word that comes to mind for it you know but the article says republicans are touting benefits of the covid-19 relief legislation they opposed in congress uh, Mitch McConnell said Republicans would have a talk with Americans about the bill's issues. Meanwhile, funding for health care and restaurants is being praised by some GOP members. You know, and the article goes on, says, For months, congressional Republicans have been unanimously opposed to the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package that was backed by President Joe Biden and signed into law in March. The stimulus package, which included $1,400 direct stimulus payments for individuals, funding for state and local governments, $300 in federal unemployment aid through September, and an expansion of the child tax credits, among other measures, did not receive a single GOP vote of support in the House or Senate. After the bill's passage, the article continues, GOP Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky slammed the legislation as a classic example of big government democratic overreach in the name of COVID relief and one of the 
uh, worst pieces of legislation he's seen in his 36 years in the Senate. He also said the GOP would talk repeatedly to the American public about the true contents of the bill in the coming months. However, some Republicans are now touting popular elements of the bill they railed against on Capitol Hill. Conservative freshman GOP Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina pointed to health funding in his district in a tweet last week, including near nearly $2.5 million for the Appalachian Mountain Community Health Centers and $4.6 million for Western North Carolina Community Health Services that was part of the legislation. And his tweet was, happy to announce that NC11, the district, will be awarded grants from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, he wrote, proud to see taxpayer dollars return to NC11. Uh, in response, Democratic National Committee Chairman Jamie Harrison took note of Hawthorne's tweet and blasted the, congr the congressman and the GOP. In his tweet, he wrote, come on, man. Representative Cawthorn is trying to take credit for grants he voted against, in all caps, uh, Republicans have no shame. And, you know, that I, I, I'd have to agree with that. You know, if if Republicans had voted for this, even though there were elements of it they didn't like, then, yes, you know, you could take credit for getting this bill done. Um, but, you know, you didn't vote for it. However, it does say that the House voted for it and the Senate voted for it. But to be truthful, it's the Democratic side of the House and the Democratic side of the Senate that got this legislation to the president's desk and got, you know, 180 million people to receive $1,400 of stimulus money and all the other things I just mentioned. Um, you know, it, it's <laughs> I, I just can't tolerate when, you know, the 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 elected officials we send to Washington, number one ignore the public wishes on matters of importance to the American people. The, the, the COVID relief bill that was signed in March by President Biden had overwhelming, and by overwhelming, I mean 60 to 70 percent of the American people, not just Democrats, uh, not just Republicans, but the American people wanted to see that bill enacted. And the Republicans uh, essentially were ignoring their constituents and voting against it. It's, and and Cawthorn's not the only one. You know, there have been others that have, have spoken out in recent weeks since the bill was signed uh, from the Republican side that, you know, uh, ha have praised the bill and all of that. Um, GOP, uh, GOP Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi praised the billions in targeted funding for the restaurant industry that he championed. It was part of the final package that he voted against. Independent restaurant operators have won $28.6 billion worth of targeted relief, he tweeted after the bill passed. This funding will ensure small businesses can survive the pandemic by helping to adapt their operations and keep their employees on the payroll. But remember, he didn't vote for it. When asked by CNN's Manu Raju why he didn't support the full measure, Wicker said he didn't have to accept the full measure uh, and was critical of the questioning. Just because there's one good provision in a $1.9 bill doesn't mean I have to vote for it. 
I think it's a stupid question. I'm not going to vote for $1.9 trillion just because it has a couple of good provisions in it. You know, the article goes on, Congressional Republicans have currently found themselves boxed into a corner on the issue. A Pew Research poll released shortly before the bill signing showed 70% of U.S. adults backing the legislation with only 28% of respondents opposed to the measure. Even 41% of Republicans or Republican-leading respondents, a significant minority, backed the COVID-19 relief bill. National GOP leaders have pledged to use the bill as a campaign attack against Democrats in the 2022 midterm elections, but nearly three dozen Republican mayors across the country, from David Holt of Oklahoma City to John Giles of Mesa, backed the legislation. So, Republicans, you're going to use the COVID-19 relief bill as a you know, political target in the 2022 election. Uh, to attack Democrats who gave the American people what they overwhelmingly wanted and needed uh, and, and, you know, assisted the country in fighting the pandemic and surviving the pandemic, you're going to use that as a political tactic to oppose Democrats. Frankly, I don't see how you have a leg to stand on in that issue. You didn't vote for the bill. You opposed it. You ran ads against it. Your, your, your PACs and your you know, funding sources ran ads and campaigns against the COVID relief bill. You, know, you had the opportunity back in 2020 to, to pass a bill like this and you, know, you stalled, you tabled it, you didn't act on it. Well, in 2021, you know, the Democrats came into uh, control in the House and Senate, and they moved the bill forward without you. And now you want to try and have it both ways. You want to take credit for the great job you did in passing this bill for the American people that you didn't vote for. You know, to, to Republican political people out there, Congress, the senators, uh, states, stop playing, stop playing hypocritical games with the lives and fortunes of the American people. Whether it's voting, you talk about having fair and open elections and yet you restrict access. You talk about you know, securing a voting and election system that has been proven in the, the last election to have no significant voter fraud or insecurity at all. So, you know, you're tilting at windmills. And what we need to get our Republican senators and our Republican members of Congress to understand is they need to listen to us. Uh, because truthfully, you can listen to the people who are giving you all the big bucks, but at the end of the day, it's us folk out here, you know, on, down here on the ground are the ones that cast the ballots that return you to office or send you home. So, you know, we need to make sure that we are communicating our message to our elected leadership and they need to relearn the lesson that this is a representative democracy, that we elect our leadership to go and do our business 
in Washington, D.C., or in the state capitals, or in the city halls. Uh, it's not the other way around, and it's, it's not the millions of dollars that, that you get from sources. So, you know, again, as always, our standing call to action is be in communication with your elected officials from, you know, your city council, your, your, your parish boards, your community representatives, all the way up to the White House. All right. And yes, Democrats, you're included in the group, too, because you guys need to stay focused. You guys need to to have a uniform um, body. You know, uh, the the idea that one uh, senator or two senators can hold up needed and life saving aid for the American people uh, because they don't want to see changes made to, you know, an arcane Senate rule called a filibuster. Um, there needs to be some addressing of that. Uh, I, I've spoken about that in prior shows. I, I, I won't go back over that ground here. But somehow the, you know, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema uh, need to, you know, publicly state what it is they're looking for. And, you know, some type of effort needs to be made to get them to get on page with the rest of the Democratic Party and do what needs to be done so that the American people can get the help they need. And in and, and, and a related matter, and I, I've thought about this, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show before. Um, I, I think, and it's just my opinion, everybody, but I think that our elected officials need to take a page from NASCAR. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is I think that when you know they appear in public, uh, their suit of clothing needs to have the logos of all of the corporations and, and sources that are providing them funding. Just like NASCAR drivers uh, have the logos of their sponsors on their clothes and on their cars, I think we ought to have the same thing for our elected officials. Or maybe when they're on television, there needs to be a rolling chyron at the bottom of the screen that says, you know, this House representative is sponsored by, <laughs> you know, uh, Citibank, is sponsored by, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, is sponsored by so-and-so-and-so-and-so, you know, and so that we know who is is pulling the purse strings of our elected officials right now the the only way you can even get something of an answer is to go to a website called opensecrets.org uh, and there you can find out who the the political contributors are to your elected officials um, but that needs to be public information that needs to be broadcast public information so just my thought on that and i, I will keep bringing that up uh, from time to time all right, so in the last segment here, um, and uh, just to, to preface this, um, we're going to be talking about this, this issue over the course of uh, the Fired Up program going forward. Uh, it, it's going to be a recurring segment. Uh, it may not be every week, but you know, at least a couple of times a month, we're going to be talking about uh, how and what we can do uh, to bring about a third political party 
uh, major third political party uh, in this country. Because um, as I said in last week's show, and I think the show before that, uh, it, it is something that we need to look at as an alternative to the 50-50 makeup of, you know, in particular the Senate, but also the slim margins that keep flip-flopping back and forth across the aisle in the House. Um, so there was an article that came out uh, from Newsweek that I found, and this actually was written back in September of last year, but it, it is still uh, relevant today in that it uh, discusses um, that most Americans, regardless of political alignment, want a third party. They want an option. So the article starts with a recent poll of 3,758 voters in the U.S. found that 60% believe that the nation needs a viable third political party outside of the Democratic and Republican parties in order to have an effective political system. Uh, the polls conducted by uh, the Washington, D.C. newspaper The Hill and market research company Harris X found that when broken out by gender, varying age ranges, races, education, and income levels, and geographic locations, support for a viable third party remained near or just above 60%. Said, however, support for third party differed between white people at 58%, black people at 64% and Latinos at 69%, as well as between Republicans at 51% and Democrats at 61%, with independents coming in at 68%. Now, out jumping out of the article for a second, you should notice that none of these numbers are below 50%. They're all you know, above 50% in favor of a support for a third political party. Um, at current, continuing the article, at current, the three largest parties in the U.S. are the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, and the Constitution Party. Each one has over 100,000 registered voters. Uh, numerous smaller third parties also exist in the United States. Um, in a statement to Newsweek, Joe Bishop Henchman, the chair of the Libertarian National Committee, noted that it got its third party presidential candidate uh, Joe Jorgensen on all 50 state ballots for the up for the November elections. Again, this article was written before the November election. Um, and it goes on, while millions of Americans vote libertarian, he added, there is only one libertarian elected official in Congress. Michigan Representative Justin Amash, uh, as such, Bishop Henchman said he wishes more states would look at voting reforms to allow third-party candidates greater representation and electability on ballots. America, in, in quoting, would be better off with more and different voices at the decision-making table, Bishop Henchman told Newsweek. In a statement to Newsweek, Green Party communications manager Michael O'Neill said that the Harris X Hill poll provides more evidence that a majority of Americans share the Green Party's view that the country can't achieve a grassroots democracy without multi-party democracy. The ideas and values in the United States that are far are, are far too diverse to be represented by only two parties, especially two parties that have been so obviously captured 
by elite power structures and conspire to stifle any outside competition, O'Neill said. And the article concludes with, because of the winner-take-all nature of the U.S. national elections, third-party candidates are often seen as non-viable, quote, spoilers, who often end up taking away votes from the candidate most closely aligned with their values. As a result, few third-party candidates ever win elections. So, you know, as I said, this is going to be part of an ongoing series that we talk about um, periodically on the show. Uh, not every week, but we will touch upon it, you know, a couple of times a month. Um, that there's a discussion to be had about having a viable third-party national uh, candidacy. And again, as I said in last week's show, if a third party could garner, you know, 10 to 12 seats in the Senate and, you know, 20 seats, 25 seats in the House, um, they would become a political force in this country because neither Democrats nor Republicans would then have a clear majority. So coalitions would need to be built and constituencies would need to be listened to, which is how it's all supposed to work anyway. So something to think about. Uh, let me know your thoughts. Send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and tell me what you think about having a, a broad third-party representation in our, in our capital, in our government, and in our elections. So I'd love to hear what you have to say. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. As always, please stay safe, everybody. Wear your mask. Keep social distancing. Keep the hygiene, washing your hands, and all of that going on. And when your opportunity comes to get your vaccine, please get the, get the vaccine. As I said, I'm getting mine on Thursday. I'll let you know how it goes, uh, and we'll talk about it on next week's show. Until then, please stay safe, and I will speak to you all again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.